Incoming transmission from an unknown source. It seems to be urgent. Patching them through. They're calling themselves the Holonet Marauders. Hey guys, welcome back to the Holonet Marauders podcast. This week, we uh, Matt's back. So welcome back. Welcome back, kid. And join with Jamie as always, and I'm AJ. So this week, we're finally going to get into the High Republic. We've all been waiting for it. And we're going to talk a little bit about Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. Since, um, since we haven't totally finished the book, we're just going to discuss part one. And then, you know, in a couple of weeks, maybe we'll, we'll finish the book and uh, we'll finish talking about the rest of the book. But um, I figure we'll do a, a round table thing here, uh, you know, King Arthur, High Republic. <laughs> Knights and, of the uh, Jedi Order. <laughs> yeah, we'll go around the table here and share our thoughts. Before we get started, uh, it has to be said immediately, this will be very spoiler heavy for Light of the Jedi, part one. Yeah, so if you're okay with spoilers, go by all means, this is the podcast for you. If you're not okay with Light of the Jedi spoilers, don't listen to this episode yet until you've read or listened to the audiobook. But this will just be covering part one of Light of the Jedi. I would highly recommend uh, reading the book if you haven't, instead of, you know, listening to other people talk about it. It's really good. Speaking of which, um, also it needs to be said, I have been reading it, reading it physically, and then AJ and Matt listen to the audiobook, so they already have, um, like, the voices in their head of what the characters sound like based on the audiobook narrator. <laughs> I forget his name. But, um... <laughs> It just makes me laugh because I'm like, oh yeah, I like I like reading the book old school like they did, and like since books were have existed of just having the voice inside my head. And meanwhile, they're like, oh yeah, Loden 100% has a Russian accent, and I'm like, what? Where did you get that? Yeah, what? no. It's... <laughs> Let's actually get into the discussion of the book now that that has been cleared up amongst all of us. Right. So now that I'm done uh, drooling over the Ben Solo Funko Pop that just got uh, <gasps> revealed, sort of. I uh, will talk about Light of the Jedi Part 1. So my thoughts coming into the, the High Republic era were I was most excited to see what these Jedi were all about because we know the prequel uh, trilogy or the prequel era Jedi are, are flawed and we see the flaws and they're very, they come off as arrogant and they, they feel very arrogant, you know, Mace Windu and Keanu Mundi being prime examples of that in my opinion. So I was curious what the Jedi would be like 200 plus years before that and off the bat we we see them come save the day on on Hetzel Prime from uh, falling debris from a blown up ship and they just they feel like superheroes to me um, that's the vibe I get and sort of like an Avengers type thing they all come in and they all they all kind of seem perfect you know um, I don't remember any, like too many struggles happening and they all they all seem more focused to me than prequel Jedi and they like I said, they, they, they feel perfect and the tr very trusting of one another, which is what we were always told Jedi were like. So that makes sense. Yes. That makes sense that this is the that's, golden era of, of the Jedi, and it, it feels like That's it. what I was going to say about uh, the Jedi in this era feel like the Jedi that we were told about in the original trilogy, where I know a lot of people, when the prequel trilogy came out, a lot of people were kind of put off by the depiction of the Jedi in that era because they weren't expecting them to be as flawed as they were. You know, having the downfall of the Jedi be partly their fault, you know, their doing, um, was, a, was a big surprise. In the original trilogy, they talk mostly about the, how the Jedi were like these, you know, 
bastions of peace and justice and hope in the galaxy, and then they were persecuted and hunted down. And you don't really get the vibe that that's that was partly on them. You know that the galaxy had fallen out of favor with the Jedi. Uh, so seeing the peak of the Jedi, you know, thinking about like how Yoda talks about the Jedi to Luke, he's mostly talking about this era as opposed to the era that we see in the prequel trilogy, right? Um, where they're just there to help. That's like their one purpose is to like help and be guided by the force as much as possible. I think they did a great job of, you know, depicting characters who are kind of perfect, but still all feel unique and feel relatable. Um, well, I say they, but I think Charles Soule did a phenomenal job with that. Yeah, I agree. There are so many characters so far out of the main characters alone that feel really relatable, like actual people. As opposed to just like these like untouchable icons, <laughs> it kind of in a way, because like with the whole comparing it to the prequels, we have the preconceived notions of we know who Anakin Skywalker is, we know who Obi Wan Kenobi is, but we don't know who any of these people are. And I could like literally tell you that Bell and Loden are definitely now two of my like favorite characters of all time, and that's absolutely crazy to say something like that, but. I, I love them so much already. I, I can't, like, talk about it enough. You know, I wasn't expecting to like Avar Chris as much as I do, um, but she's phenomenal. Uh, I really, and I, she's got, like, the coolest power, but we'll get into that later. Um, she's just got, like, this really cool, calm aura around her where she's almost, like, like one of the main figureheads of the Jedi, the leader of the Jedi. But um, she's not on the Jedi everybody Council. Everybody knows her. Everybody likes her. Yeah, she's no, not no, no. on the she's Jedi She's not even Council. on the Council. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting like, thing that they, like, you, you hear more about that in, like, part two. Like, you get a lot more about uh, Avar, Chris, and um, Elzar, I believe. Elzar. Elzar, yeah, we get man. More, man. Bam. We'll talk about that in, like, the next time. But you, for, for me, I liked Avar, um, Avar or Avar. What do we think it is? I think it's Avar. The, the way the... Avar? Yeah, the way the novel pronounces it, um, the audiobook says Avar, Chris. Avar, sure, okay. Avar. Um, I've been reading it as Avar, but that's just me. Avar, um, Chris. So, as like it goes through, like I, I liked her like moving through part one, but I really liked her more as the novel progresses, because based on Definitely. what she does within part one is she pretty much like is able to coordinate all of these Jedi pretty much across the galaxy because she has such a strong connection with the Force. And it's so interesting. We can dive into this right now, actually. Interesting how the way that she communicates with the Force, it sounds like it's a song to her. That's something that we haven't really, like, experienced before, is each Jedi that they talk about, they each experience the Force in, like, a different way of, like, actually finding their center. It's not just, like, something that it's not the same thing for each person they each experience it in a different way so for bell it's a fire he experiences a fire he like thinks of a fire and like literally like stokes the flames to make it like grow stronger for him for elzar enzar elzar (laughs) elzar for for elzar it's literally an ocean and so he like tries to like ride the waves as he goes through it but then for avar it is a song and that is how she communicates with all of those jedi and it's something that we've never like seen before it's something that we've like all thought about before it's like oh the force is this all like mystical literal force around us and all the jedi it seems like would interpret it the same way but it shows us no 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 jedi definitely interpret things totally different even though they're told the same thing in the first place which is like a really good stepping stone for 
how the force really works. Yes, and I think it's great to kind of show how how much more free this era of the Jedi were versus the prequel mm-hmm. era, where you know interpreting the force is a different thing, seeing it is a different thing, and finding your center with a different image or belief of what the force is feels almost uh, anti dogmatic, not just like non dogmatic, but against this kind of rigid interpretation that the the Jedi of the prequels seem to be following. This these rules are not as cut and dry as you know you would you would think uh, seeing the prequel jedi so it was sort of cool to see see the jedi team up and use force powers together i mean in like star wars rebels we see kanan and ezra kind of team up and use their powers together and mm-hmm. you know we see masters and padawans use it together but to see them use it as a group together to save the day in, in the book here uh you know there's one part where i think they're carrying do they move some like uh they remo- they move this gi- there's a giant tank filled with tabana gas yep. i believe heading yes. towards one of the three suns in the hetzal system and of course all of the jedi connect to each other to amplify their ability to see it and then move it you know um which is really cool something that's like super interesting with like how they learn about what's going on around them is avar chris is kind of the point of contact for all of the force it seems but it's it's not at the same time because obviously every jedi has like access to tapping into the force but they all seem to be like somehow she can connect with their minds and like work with it that way so she has like this huge mental telepathy power um through the force that she utilizes throughout this entire experience and at so that's how she even learns that this uh, Tabanagas is hurtling towards the sun and literally they stop everything and they're like, all right, all Jedi, my friends, we all need to do something right now. And it's it's kind of, if I had to like explain it in like a, what to like compare it to, it kind of seems like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows when Voldemort just starts like talking to like everyone. <laughs> like you just like hear his voice hmm. yeah, and now I'm speaking to Harry Potter alone. It's like that kind of thing. Like that's like how I would like explain it to someone of how it how her powers are like working not in like a bad way but she's connecting with all those jedi and she's hearing she's like projecting this message to all of them i need your help right now this is what we need to do and it's like simple like we need to stop the object we need to move the object that's what we need to do and like that's it just keeps being like repeated so she's definitely more like telepathic than empathic yeah. uh we've seen empaths you know like uh, quinlan voss uh Cal Kestis, mm-hmm. Ray, for instance, where, you know, you sense like past emotions and stuff attached to different force imbued objects, but we've never really seen like a telepath before. I would argue, uh, I know you likened it to how Voldemort talks to people in the Deathly mm-hmm. Hallows, and I agree, yeah. like that's, that's more of like a literal, like one-to-one comparison, but the way I see it is more, it's not exactly like force projection, obviously, because there's no image right. of her, but she's connecting with people, not just in the Hetzal system. She connects to people back at the Jedi Temple, for instance. She connects with Yoda, who's like chilling at the Jedi Temple. Um, she, you know, she's connecting with people from all around the galaxy, and that takes a lot of power. And I, what I really liked was that it showed just how strenuous this power was. I mean, for her, she seems to have a pretty good grasp mm-hmm. of it. So she's not you know, she's not struggling with it too much, but a lot of other Jedi in the system who are working to move this um, this tanker, uh, they pass out. Some of them even die. Some of them 
like die, they fall to their deaths. Oh, the fall to your death. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Like there's literally one guy that's oh, like, goodness. oh, he saved someone from doing some I don't know, he saved a person and then in He saved a person from like a on like a high ledge, like on top of a tower who was about to fall. And then he fell And then he's like connecting with the force. Everything that he was pushing into this task. I think it also speaks yeah. so highly of like how um committed that these Jedi are for the, the greater good cause. It really Exactly. It really exemplifies the fact of... How do I want to explain this? It really showcases the fact that Jedi are for the people and the Force is for everyone and it's not just a singular internal thing. It really shows how they are willing to go the extra mile to help everyone and it doesn't It doesn't matter really who the people are. That they'll, just, they'll be pushing as far as they can and giving as much as they can in order to help these people. And, you know, in that whole attitude doesn't just come from the Jedi, mm-hmm. but the Republic itself at right. the time. I mean, obviously, this is called the High Republic for a reason. It's like the peak, not just of the Jedi, but of the Republic itself. And it's funny because in this book, there's a saying, we are all the Republic. The we are the Republic saying uh, is is very emblematic The in the prequels. And I know I keep returning to the prequels. That's okay. That's all we have to compare. Yeah, the High Republic and then the Republic era. Um, I really like the contrasts between the two, where it's almost an exact opposite. You see, when in the prequels, the Jedi and the Republic are so intertwined, so attached, um, that the Jedi have almost no choice but to enter into the Clone Wars. They have no choice but to follow along with the Republic. They try to you know, act for the Republic um, in their own best interests. And Palpatine uses that against them uh, very effectively. And it's funny to think that the connection that the Jedi have to the Republic is their undoing in the prequels, but it is it is their, you know, it is their strong suit in the High Republic. It is exactly what you want. We Are the Republic is emblematic of the Jedi, and the Jedi are emblematic of We Are All the Republic. It's, you know, it's their strength in the High Republic where it's their downfall in the prequels because of just how time changes things it's it's a good showcase of how something falls over time um kind of like collapses how long would you say that the republic and the jedi have been working this closely together at this point in time in the high republic is it like a recent um merger in a sense because we know it's 200 years before the prequels so at this point i mean it they seem pretty established um you know joss adrian the captain of the the ship that of our of our Chris is on. Um, he mentions at one point, I remember that, uh, you know, he had seen the work of, you know, he'd, he'd worked with the Jedi a few times and he, uh, you know, seen some things. So it seems like they've been working together for a while now, but I'm not, you know, I don't think it's been too long. Right. So I actually haven't reached this part of the book yet, but it's something, I know there's like some lore uh, tidbits that are like sprinkled throughout the, the book. I haven't read them yet, but apparently during like a, a council discussion or something, they discuss like the old Jedi Sith war and how it kind of like ravaged the galaxy. And it took them a really long time to like rebuild from that. Hmm. And I think that was kind of the beginning of the Jedi and the Republic being like so intertwined, uh, you know, based on assumptions, I suppose uh, 800 years would be where, because the Jedi obviously, well, not obviously, but probably helped the Republic yeah. rebuild. So, you know, over time, that relationship probably strengthened into what it is when we see them in the High Republic. 
Um, so that's like 800 years. That's almost an entire millennium of cooperation. It's a good, uh, good chunk of time. A little bit. I mean, like, if your entire galaxy got decimated after a war between Force users, you probably wouldn't need that long to rebuild an entire galaxy. <laughs> so I feel like at, at this point in time, though, so they just... Oh, I forget what the name of it is. The Project Starbeam? <laughs> Project That's, Starlight. So, Starlight. Okay, yeah. So, before I dive into, like, my next, like, take on this, the something that's super difficult in this sense is uh, getting the visuals down, getting the names right, and not, uh, people and places. And that's it. Those are, like, the most difficult things in this. It, it's one thing when you're, like, reading just, like, a casual, like, novel, but when you're reading, like, actual Star Wars stuff, it's like, I want to make sure it's actually on point and make sure I have the right visual. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned getting visuals. Um, I tweeted about this, but the the Great Jedi Rescue, which oh, is yeah. a kid's picture book with stickers um, by Kevin Scott, it gives it gives um it gives the reader some visuals to go along with. And I was re- listening to the audiobook, so it helped me kind of look at the pictures as I was um, yeah. being read to, like I'm a... <laughs> five-year-old you know you get to see what these characters look like and um what the you know head prime looked like and all that and it you know it was awesome i enjoyed that so whoever's if you're reading this book or listening to it you know check out the the kids book if you can it's a it's only five bucks and you'll get some stickers in addition to that as well so it's a little a little kids book it's like the story time sized books it's like a soft cover book um it's called the great jedi rescue and it was literally only five dollars but it is the entire part one of light of the jedi just like like watered, da- watered down because it's yeah. a kid's story and um visualized and so you get to see almost all the characters you get to see what the ships actually look like and they look fantastic you get to see the the three sons of Hetzal, which i'm just noticing right now as i'm looking through it again i'm pretty sure that's the tabana guess but yeah that's like, the tabana guess canister i remember because yeah. i actually when i when i saw first saw the book when you guys showed me the book i was like oh my god like this is exactly how i visualized it it was really cool to like actually get like what I was picturing on paper, on paper, on like you know the page. Um, sadly, though, it doesn't depict my favorite scene in the book so far. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the scenes right now, but uh, yeah, we can we can go into that. Yeah, let's hop in. The, my favorite scene in in this this book so far is when Avar Chris is using that kind of um, telepathy connection. Uh, she has her ship land in this field of blue crops you know it's not they don't explain what they are but it's i picture it as like blue wheat you know and and she lands on this Bacta. you know yeah is it, it, is it, it Bacta? it could have it probably is it probably is we'll we can talk about later. that after we'll get to that later um but she lands in this blue field of crops um and she kind of you know sits down you know cross-legged connects her fingers together you know closes her eyes and starts floating. And of course, I love that whole visual. It's very sequels. You know, we see a lot of the, we see the Jedi float. Uh, We see Luke floating. We see Rey floating. So we see a lot of floating. In addition to her floating though, one visual that was really incredible just to like, just to read and just visualize was not only is like she like slipping into like this like deep meditation, but a big part of it is her lightsaber just like floats to like in front of her right. face well that's what i was gonna say it, yeah it's, it, her, uh, she places her lightsaber yeah. down it flies over her head and ignites and then spinning. starts spinning like crazy like a helicopter and it's like oh my goodness like just to to picture that what um, purpose it serves we're not it, sure but it is definitely like a deep cool. state of meditation and it's very cool rule of cool <laughs>
So do we want to talk about why the Jedi are coming to Hetzal Prime? We haven't oh my exactly touched upon that, but I don't know if you guys want to take ah, the reins yes. with that. So they are all on their way back from the Starlight Beacon, in which they went to just see what it see how the construction was going of it, which is interesting to like think about. And so this entire like first um act, they are all in their dress robes, and so all the Jedi are like explained as wearing fancy. yeah fancy clothes and everything's like white and gold and it's like oh very interesting these white gold right. robes so everything yeah. in the the great jedi rescue for the visuals shows them in these like white and gold robes and it's, it shows that they're like a little bit like flaunty but the fact that they have these like dress robes it's like oh this is really cool but then as we move on through the story they're back in their like normal like jedi clothes which is like pretty much the same thing as like prequel era like jedi but it's slightly different they describe it more as like armor. Yes. So some have like metal plating, some have like leather uh, armor. So if you actually like uh, look at some of the artwork for the High Republic, you can kind of get a sense of the kind of, you know, dress that the normal uh, Jedi wear at the time. Uh, and because the cover of the book, I'm assuming, is their dress robes because they're, you know, white and fancy and... Very you know, flashy, they have, like, yeah. the headdress, uh, you know, like, the teeth. Uh, Avar is wearing, like, some kind of, like, headdress or something. Um, meanwhile, of course, you know, in all of the other artwork you see, everybody's wearing, like, brown and leather. And, you know, some have, like, you know, these, like, whitish robes. But it's definitely different, you know. They're not all dressed in, like, golden armor with white robes. Like, I originally, that's what I originally thought for the Jedi for this time period. They would be, like, really extravagant and lavish. I think they're in the in the kids' book. They also showed at that at the end um, when they're back at Starlight Beacon. I think that those are kind of like the ceremonial robes um, and not their battle robes. So that's that's pretty cool. I'm looking through the little thing really quick. Halfway through the story, sometimes they're in like their normal robes and then they're in the ceremonial robes, and so it's like back and forth during the kids' book. That continuity's not there, but that <laughs> for the entirety of the first act, they are in their ceremonial robes just for the story. And so the. <laughs> They're at Starlight Beacon. They're getting like a tour, right? This is right before they're doing like a big ceremony to open it. So that's why they're all like in fancy clothes. And they get a, a distress call from the Hetzal system. So at the, the first chapter of the book is like a prologue where we see the legacy run starship in hyperspace almost collide with another object in hyperspace, which is, you know, not supposed to happen. And so, you know, the, the pilot tries to do a maneuver, the ship breaks apart, and suddenly there are these things called these emergences, where pieces of the ship are literally flying out of hyperspace at, like, light speed, and anything they collide with is just, you know, obliterated, because obviously it's like light speed missiles, for crying out loud. Um, and the first emergence happens in the Hetzal system, so everybody is, like, lost and confused, and they call the Jedi to, to come help, and of course... The whole first part is basically the Jedi effort to help the citizens of the Hetzal system, you know, through this crisis. So that's why there were so many Jedi in the Hetzal system in the first place to even deal with this, because they were all out past Hetzal for the Starlight Beacon. Right. And we don't really have that much information yet about what the Starlight Beacon fully is. We get a little bit more info in part two, but it essentially will be like an outpost for Outer Rim territories that the Republic is trying to push for and just to get more um, accessibility. Yeah, more accessibility yeah. for those Outer Rim territories to communicate with the core worlds. It's like an Outer Rim outreach. You know, they're, ex yeah. they're starting to expand yeah. more into that territory and they want to establish pre their presence out there. I love how Hetzal 
most of the events take place on one of the moons called the Fruited Moon. Ah, but don't <laughs> forget the Rooted we, Moon. We haven't heard, heard it before. Love. We haven't... Well, the Rooted Moon hasn't appeared yet. That appears in, like, part well, they two, do, doesn't it? But They do they say... They, it, they do mention the Rooted Moon. There's, like, the Rooted Moon, the Fruited Moon. I love, like, these naming of moons like that. It's oh, you gotta so name good. the moons. <laughs> the Fruited Moon, the Rooted Moon, and then Hetzal Prime. My two favorite things in part one have nothing to do with uh, the actual plot, of course. And um, number one is I wrote BACTA in all caps. Yes. It's the beginning, it's the beginning of BACTA. And they mention it as an experimental um, you know, medicine of sorts to heal people. And it's like, oh my God, we obviously all know what BACTA is. And it's, it's such a cool world building thing, a lore thing to see like the beginning of BACTA 200 years before the Phantom Menace. And yeah where that can go it's such like a casual like one-off of like a line too they're just like oh yeah they're like experimenting with a, a thing called bacta in which they might be it might work for a medical procedures and it's just like ah, but whatever we don't really know about that they're just in testing and it's like wait a second we know what bacta is we know that's gonna work this is fantastic it's only 200 years old what <laughs> that's it's you know and i love the the high republic is making up for something that personally i was not a fan of in legends uh, Bacta exists like 4,000 years again before, you know, the Skywalker saga in Legends. And obviously they're changing that now so that we actually see technological progression. Um, that was one of my things that I really didn't like in the old continuity was that technology never really seemed to progress. Even though George Lucas seemed to want to create some kind of sense of technology progressing. Like Anakin has a robot arm in Episode 3, but then Luke has like this fleshy robotic arm in Episode 6 and it's different, or Episode 5, and it's different, you know, it's, it's, it looks yeah. like it's progressed. Same with like the ships and the ship models and stuff. And now it's like, we're seeing this, you know, Bacta is such a, is such a cemented, you know, concept in Star Wars. We all know what Bacta is. And now we're actually seeing the origins of it. And it's only 200 years before the prequels. So my second thing I wrote down here was uh, that I loved from part one was, I don't really know how to word it, but uh, Star Wars inappropriate stories? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Star Jedi, Wars porn? Can I say porn? Jedi romances. Yeah. That's, what they, that's what he calls them. We got some glorified well, not... fan fiction mentions in uh, chapter two. <laughs> there's not only just the, the woman in the office reading the stories, but at the beginning on the, I forget the name of the ship at the beginning. But Legacy there's run. the two kids who are like looking up stories or something, and yes. the, the oh, woman yeah. running the ship was like, "Don't think I didn't see that." So, yes, <laughs> and it's you know it's it's so funny to think about like the the Jedi are so you know popular and heroic that they're like writing romance novels starring these like dashing Jedi knights, um, even though you know obviously people don't know enough about the Jedi to know that attachment isn't a thing. So they're just writing, you know, these stories about two Jedi falling in love. And what I really liked is there's a description in the in the the book about the book where he talks about like, oh, you know, these stories are all the same. They're so cliched. You know, they at the end, they battle with lightsabers. But, you know, that's only to mask what they truly want to say. We all know what they really want to say. And it's like, you know, that's distilling Star Wars down to its very core. You know, the best lightsaber battles are always not just lightsaber battles there's, there's always something more although we've never had a romantic lightsaber battle i guess the death star 2 battle on kef burr in episode 9 would be the closest to that or episode 8 but they're working together they're not fighting each other so it's different anyway. maybe these uh, fan fiction uh, things they are working together we don't know that 
Mm, that's true. That's true. But I love, yeah, I, that was a great detail you mentioned. I like that. Like you said, it goes to show how much people don't really care to know about the Jedi. Like they're like, oh, they're these guardians and they're there, but we don't know that much about their their culture and whatnot. So who knows what they're doing? So I like that. So something, so I guess some of the things that I wrote down, some of my favorite things, um, I wrote down Jedi romances and stuff like that. But I also wrote down, <laughs> I wrote uh, the vectors, the vector, yes. the starfighters the of the Jedi at the time are really cool. They're very like uh, bare bones and basic. They're not very fancy, except for this one thing that I want to talk about, which is the lightsaber weaponry key. And I really like that concept. It's basically whoever's flying a vector needs a lightsaber to operate the weapons of the ship. You need to place your lightsaber on like the quote unquote dashboard control panel, whatever. Um, And then you'll gain access to the weapons. And it's said that that's, you know, so that people think twice before they attack, before they use weapons. You actually have to, you know, think about what you're going to do before you do it. You have to place your lightsaber on the, the control panel before you're able to actually use violence. I think that's perfect. I think, again, that's like a perfect concept of what like the Jedi are supposed to be. They're never supposed to be like, they're all, George Lucas described it as lightsaber on the table diplomacy, right? I think I mentioned that in another podcast. Yeah, you mentioned it before. (laughs) And it's, and and that's like as literal as you could possibly get. The, The Jedi need to literally place their lightsabers on the control panel before they can before they can actually intervene with with any kind of attack with any kind of weaponry the way that the weapon systems and the vectors are operated is like the biggest example of this but they mention it a lot basically in any in any scene with Loden and bell um Loden, great storm the wonderful twilight jedi master with the russian accent apparently and french bell's accent. out of french 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 I, it, french accent you guys told me russian whatever <laughs> and then uh, Bel Zedifar, his Jedi Padawan, who I believe is about 16 years old or so. He is incredible, first of all. The, in pretty much every single time Bell is mentioned, he it, it gives his like inner thought processes and uh, what he's like picking up, what he's learning, and we, we are learning and growing with him. And he talks very highly about what a Jedi should be doing with the lightsaber and the only times that it should be used. There's a moment in which Loden and Bell first arrive on Hetzal Prime. It might be the Fruited Moon. It's the Fruited Moon, right? Yeah, they, they land there. Um, yes. And they are helping a bunch of people get into a private property in which the guards on the, the wall outside this private property are like, no, no, no one can come in. Even though there's a ship, no one can come in because we just don't want random people in. And Loden and Bell are like, all right, well, uh, the ship in there can definitely take care of all these people. You should help. And Bell almost goes for his lightsaber, but Loden's just like, no, 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 we don't need to do that. And he doesn't, Loden doesn't mind trick the guy, but he just uses his actual like diplomacy skills to like get through it. And later on, like it ends up being Bell does like pick up on when you should use a lightsaber, when you shouldn't be using the lightsaber and just how important that is of, even though you are a Jedi, you shouldn't always be using the lightsaber to work yourself out of a situation. And that's something that these higher Republic Jedi are definitely showing amongst all of them. Yeah, exactly. I find uh, I find Loden Greatstorm and Bell Zedifar to be in an even more perfect duo um, of like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. I was just going to say for that. The, yeah. For those who, I get that vibe a lot. And for those who have read Master and Apprentice, you know that 
Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan had their issues, uh, like relationship-wise, and they they didn't really understand each other, and then they kind of grouped together, and in Phantom Menace, we know they're uh, pretty close. But Loden and Bell seem to be very similar to that, but Loden seems to be a bit of a better teacher than maybe Qui-Gon was, but I, he's also similar to Qui-Gon, I think. Yeah, definitely. You have like the calm, collected Jedi Master and like the sort of, not really hot-headed, but more just, you know, young is the best yeah. the best way to describe it. Green, you know, the the green Padawan who's trying to figure out, you know, how to do this, how to do that, while the Master is like, oh, I've already mastered all that. You know, you can do it too. You just got to push yourself. And it's like, you know, they, it's a clash, but it's great. It's like a great, they're not, they don't like hate each other or anything. I wouldn't no. say yeah, they don't. They definitely don't. Like, Bell has so much respect for him, yeah. and it's very clear throughout it. And it also shows that Loden has a ton of respect for Bell as well, which is something that I feel we didn't really see as much, like, um, evidence of in, like, the prequels. I mean, the only master-apprentice relationship we see is Obi-Wan and Anakin, and, like, they obviously have a mutual respect for each other, but then they end up, like, trying to kill each other. So, I mean, like, you can only respect <laughs> each other so far when that happens. This is something that we haven't really, like, read that, like, deep into yet of, like, an actual healthy master padawan relationship yeah exactly yeah exactly i was gonna bring up that we so far i mean we haven't seen any of the padawans really butt heads with their masters and i mean even going to ezra and and kanan you know there's always you know kanan's very similar geez ezra's very similar to anakin where they're stubborn and they think they're kind of they're know-it-alls and they think they're better than they are but we don't see that here they like you guys said they have a great respect for their masters and that just also goes to show that this is the the golden era of the Jedi and, you know, they're better teachers and they, they get respect from their Padawans easier. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. So I guess my the only other thing is, I, for one thing, I love the novel's prevalence of sequel aliens, sequel era aliens. <laughs> yeah. um, at some point they mention, they mention Hosnian Prime. I know that's not an alien, but they mention Hosman Prime. <laughs> they mention uh, an Anzellan, which is Babu Frick's species. Yep. Um, later on, it, well, I won't get into that yet. But there's multiple, you know, mentions of sequel aliens in this, and you'll 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 get more as you go along. Obviously, there aren't as many in Part One, but there are a lot later. Um, and I really like that because, to be honest, this book and this series is like re not recycling, but kind of, you know, diving deeper into a lot of sequel concepts, specifically the Last Jedi concepts. This is, I, you know, I was having like a, an epiphany while listening to it the other day, and I wrote down a bunch of things. Um, you know, with Avar Chris reaching out to Jedi across the galaxy, it almost felt like Luke force projecting across the galaxy, you know, kind of connecting with people, even though he's not really there. Um, and, of course, the main plot of this is that hyperspace is now a weapon. And something that people always talk about with The Last Jedi is the hyperspace ram and how come nobody's ever used that before. Um, you know, you, we kind of maybe see why or we see in the past, you know, hyperspace being used in a destructive way. We see, you know, hyperspace missiles, quote unquote, being used to destroy things and, and just how unpredictable and difficult it is to actually pull that off. I think that the last big piece of all this at the end of part one is all the Jedi who are in that area focus on saving Hetzal, and they do. They succeed in uh, getting the Tabana guests out of the, out of there. But um, during this, more emergences happen in the system, pretty much like a few systems over in the Abdallah system, and 20 million people die. And this is something that they uh, 
kind of talk about in the next part, but the Jedi saved this entire system, but they also accidentally let something else happen in another system. So even though it is like this like, high age for all of them, they are still not perfect because I don't know how they could have overlooked that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <and aces>. Oops. <laughs> and that's also what we get our first um, glimpse at the Nile so far, which are the big bad of um, this book so far. We still don't know what jumped in front of the legacy run in hyperspace to cause all of these emergences. So that's something that they will be actively investigating in part two, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, we don't know what caused it still. I'm pretty sure it's not the Nile because like, uh, I don't know. They just seem like marauders and raiders. And I'm very it... excited to learn more about them. I'm very, very excited to learn more about them. My theory is that it was the Nile, but it was an accident. Oops. It was My not theory a purposeful is that it was the Nihil, but it was on purpose. So Ooh. We got all the bases covered. All right. Come back in two weeks to see who's right. Bragging rights. <laughs> By the way, I won the draft voting thing. Ah. My team I won. No, I don't care. Matt and cares then, a lot. Um... I care a little. <laughs> I care immensely. <laughs> Not fair. You guys don't have... I'm sorry. Our, our fans just don't have good taste. Sorry, guys. I'm just, I'm just going to be the one to have to drop that on you guys. So we will go into our question of the week now. And the question is, what is your comfort Star Wars film? Ooh. Who do you want to go first? If we count to three, can we all say it at the same time? Sure. <laughs> Wait, I need to think. And just know he... that my decision is based on my current attitude. Uh, because every single Star Wars movie at one point or another has been a comfort movie for me or like my Star Wars comfort movie. But now, currently, this is the one I go to for like comfort. And you guys are probably going to know which one I'm going So we'll to count to three and we'll say it, but hopefully there's not a delay, right? This is going to be awkward if it's not the same one. <laughs> oh, I don't think it will be, but we'll... Okay, so we'll count to three <laughs> and we'll great. say it. All right, okay. ready? Yep. One, two, three. The Phantom Menace. Attack of the Clones. Oh, <laughs> who are you? Um, I told you. I, you yeah, knew so that, this. That doesn't mean it's those are our favorite Star Wars movies, obviously. Those are just like our, you know, it's a rainy day out or we're, we're down in the dumps and it's just kind of a movie to cheer us up. Ooh, I think the Phantom, Menace, the Phantom Menace is just like a fun from start to finish, Star Wars, like complete Star Wars movie pretty yeah, much. Definitely. And, uh, I could not tell you the amount of times I'm just like doing a task in the house and then all of a sudden I can just hear like a random scene from the Phantom Menace on the TV suddenly oh, and AJ's will... just like, hey, uh, yeah, here it is. <laughs> it's just such well, a, okay. it's just such an easy, it's just such an easy, easy Star Wars movie to put on. Um, it's simple, you know, Empire or A New Hope is also great, but you know, I get too immersed in it and any of the sequel movies, which I all love, you know, I, there's too many emotions that come out and I get too involved in those too. So. Right. Yeah. And for me, you know, Attack of the Clones is, in my opinion, the greatest rainy day movie ever made. It's pretty slow. It's very chill. There isn't a ton going on. There isn't a ton of action. It's mostly just like, you know, a little calm romance. See, so slaughters a village, sure. But then we're back to, you know, the meadows and it's nice. And, you know, it's, it's got some great music, very calm music. Um, it's one of the best soundtracks now. I mean, it's kind of like jumped up on my list. And this is all in like the past couple of months. I've kind of discovered just how like chill Attack of the Clones really is. Um, 
And anytime I'm feeling like distressed or just want to like relax, I'll throw on Attack of the Clones. Uh, and I think it's like the perfect chill movie to just sit back and, and just lose yourself in. I agree with you there. Attack of the Clones would probably be up there for me too. And um, it's it goes to the it's just a chill movie, and there's there's not a it's not a stressful movie like yeah. as much as we love some of these other Star Wars movies. Um, there's a lot going on, and it's you know for the most part it's laid back. And Obi Wan's saber dart chase is one of my favorite things in Star Wars. It's just such a cool little thing. It kind of leads to nowhere, but it's cool. Seeing Dex is awesome. Yeah. Agreed. I think that one thing that you definitely need when you are trying to pick your comfort movie is to have something that you feel comfortable, like, just being yourself. And you're like, this is the best, like, funniest thing I can absolutely do right now to make myself, like, feel better or just whatever's going on. And no matter what the situation is, The Phantom Menace will always make me laugh my butt off at some point during a watch through. Doesn't matter. It might be a joke that I made up myself, or some like random scene in which Qui-Gon steps over a pile of poop. I'm serious, it makes me laugh every single time, and it happens a few times. So, it it's just something that you, you know, if you're in whatever sort of mood, you're like, you know what's gonna make me feel better? Watching a very specific scene of a very specific movie, and it usually happens. I either do that, or I like go down a rabbit hole of like my favorite music videos, and it's usually a bunch of like Foo Fighters and Beastie Boys ones, because those are the best ones. But, um, yeah, comfort movies. That's, uh, I guess it's the Phantom Menace. I'd also do Solo, because always. <laughs> yeah, Solo was up there for me, too. It's just fun. Thanks for listening to the Holland at Marauders podcast this week. We're going to each jump into our uh, Jedi vectors and zip on off. But uh, we want to thank you guys so much for listening to the show this week. Um, on behalf of AJ, on behalf of Matt and myself, thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter, at Holland at Marauder, on Instagram, at Holland at Marauders. And then we also have a Patreon, which is Holland at Marauders. And then we also have a YouTube channel. Just search for Holland at Marauders. Thank you so much for listening to the Holland at Marauders podcast. We'll see you guys next week.